Hey guys, welcome to Project A Plus, uh, the podcast where two people with two vastly different accents talk about uh, movies, usually new releases. We're definitely talking about two movies that we've both watched. So today on the podcast, we'll be talking about the 2017, so nearly contemporary, Netflix original film, War Machine, followed by a discussion of the 1994 much delayed Martin Short classic Clifford so War Machine as stated is a 2017 Netflix original film written and directed by David Michaud and based or inspired by the non-fiction book The Operators by Michael Hastings a Rolling Stone journalist who's uh, appears in the film at some point as well and also narrates the film as a fictional character when you look at the credit that it was both written and directed by David Michaud, your first thought might be, okay, this is a David Michaud pattern project. Like he read Michael Hastings' book and thought this would make a great film. But he was actually commissioned to write and direct the film. Oh, that's bizarre. And I think Brad Pitt was attached to it before that happened as a producer and also the star of the film. I wonder why it attracted them to David Michaud then. I guess David Michaud had enough cachet at this point from his previous projects i guess still notably animal kingdom animal kingdom i watched after uh, enduring an avalanche of critical praise definitely one of the most acclaimed australian films of the last couple of years it certainly is so i was a little bit mystified actually watching it about how it garnered quite that level of praise like it's fine but it's not exceptional and i don't even remember it that well but that's my only experience with david michaud to date prior to seeing this film the film revolves around a general named Glenn McMahon who is sent to Afghanistan to salvage the operation there and replacing the previous general who was dismissed for whatever reason. And as stated, the film is based on real-life events but sort of semi-fictionalised, so he, he doesn't have the same name as the actual general. Yeah, his name was Stanley McChrystal. And the film just follows his progress after his appointment and his eventual realisation that he's in a no-win situation in Afghanistan, both in terms of the reality on the ground and also the bureaucracy behind the scenes coming from Washington. Yes. Now, I guess tonally it's going for a satirical comedy, but because it deals with the topic of modern warfare... It also has a dramatic element to it as well, but overall, I guess it's a satirical comedy. I guess that's what it's trying to be. Though, I guess that, that's a good sort of starting point for our discussion, which is, uh, did you laugh at all this movie, Hugh? <laughs> no. Yeah, nor did I. Are you eating cereal? <laughs> yeah, it's like nine o'clock right now. I was going to take you to task because the I feel pretty episode. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're clicking a pen, like, <laughs> every two seconds. I mean, at least eating cereal is kind of more ambient noise. Like, it sounds like it's capturing where you are in New York at the moment. I'm just going to drive you mad. But the clicking of the pen was driving me mad. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, I'm sorry, Hugh. Now, when I'm talking, I can cut that out. That's fine. When you, you do it in the middle of talking. <laughs> was that what you were doing? Like, do you click pens? I honestly don't remember. I do click pens, though. I'm sort of jittery sometimes. Oh, shit. I forgot to check the score. Huh? Come on, come on. Is it the fucking game over yet? We're trying to do this fucking podcast stuff. <laughs> You've already gone off so much off topic. 
I don't know what's happening. I just see an Australian guy waving to the crowd. Does this mean they won? Or is there going to be a penalty shootout because it was one all and it was nearly finished? Yep, it's 1-1. One, one. Okay, so it's going to be a shootout. Or is it going to be a draw? I think it's going to be a draw. Yeah, it's a draw. It's a draw. You mean they don't do a shootout? Yeah, apparently. Oh, okay. They do a shootout like if it's maybe a more critical match. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I never watched the World Cup, so I don't give a shit. <laughs> so back to the fucking movie we're talking about. If I just approach this film from a screenplay perspective, first of all, there's nothing much that is interesting to me about the subject matter that it's exploring. Really? Allow me to remind you that uh, this is a war that Australia did participate in. No, no, but I'm, I don't mean like just the fact that it's about the war in Afghanistan, but what it's going for. Yeah, okay. It's somewhat of a tepid retread of the more interesting source material. Yeah, I agree. It definitely made me more interested in reading the book it was based on. Than... Sounds interesting, right? There's there's interesting things there. Yes. But when you tell me, even before I know anything about the film or I've seen the film, that someone's going to make like a semi-fictionalized satirical comedy version of this, I'm not interested. But that being said, there is still like interesting things within the source material that could lead to a competent fictional portrayal of it. I mean, presumably. And even in, in this screenplay as we have it by David Michaud, there is content. Like, we do get a character progression. We do get the reality of war and the bureaucracy of Washington. I feel like there's a, a semblance of theme that could have been interesting. So what I'm saying is all this leads up towards what I would classify as harmless boilerplate entertainment right entertainment quote-unquote and i don't think it's incompetent if you look at the way the film is put together but dot 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 i think brad pitt gives like a singularly awful performance oh he's so bad i'll, I'll let me read the the uh, the thing that i wrote about this in my notes which is that he seems so confused eye movement with acting the main thing to say about his performance i think is the vocal work right so if you thought he was bad in Inglorious Bastards, which I did personally. I think he's fine in Inglorious Bastards. I disagree with you. Here, it's not even a Southern affectation. It's just a I'm a drill sergeant general person affectation. He doesn't erase the Brad Pitt-isms of his voice. The problem is every line that comes out of his mouth, every sound that comes out of his mouth says in capital letters, Hi, I'm Brad Pitt, and I'm putting on a voice. Yeah, but that I think stuff. I think that his persona is ill-fitted towards playing or submerging himself in a role like this. I think he can be good in roles where he's riffing on his persona or the person that he is. But if he's playing a role like this, I think. But see, there are movies where he does play like wacky characters that I think he's good in, like uh, Bird After He's good in that. But that's like, he's played it as a joke in that. Where this is like going for something that's a little more, it's supposed to be a little soulful, right? He's just literally the wrong person for this part. So first of all, as you've touched upon, his range as an actor does not lend himself to being able to take on this type of role that is beyond his normal persona. Or I feel like he could have, I think he could be a decent general type, but not if he's doing these fucking terrible affectations. Like, this movie would have been improved 
at least 30% if he had not done that so annoying voice. I agree. I, I think I think if if someone was cast who was right for that role and wasn't putting on a voice and was just appropriate, the film would have been significantly better. Like, it's not a stretch to say that Brad Pitt doing a voice in this film is not a million miles away from my Brian Doyle Murray impression. Oh, God. <laughs> for uh, the viewer, for the viewers at home, uh, we back in the old days of the podcast, we were trying to record an episode on seventeen again. <laughs> we tried to record it like three or four times, if I remember, if I remember correctly. In which Brian Doyle plays a small role. Yeah. So even though he plays a small role in the film itself, he played a large role in our attempts at recording a podcast about it. In our hearts. <laughs> anyway, so back to War Machine. But he's also physically not quite right in the way that they've tried to make him look like an aged general and dyed his hair grey. Yeah, it just looks it just looks wrong. It looked like a Photoshop adjustment of hue, really. And then it made it even worse because then his on screen wife Spread by Meg Tilly. Who's a writer and an actor. And she clearly has dyed grey hair as well. So it looks ridiculous. Like the scenes when they're together. There's no there's no point at which he seems like an actual human being, which kind of just like deprives the movie of everything it's trying to do. We're talking about Brad Pitt. What do you think about the other performances? Because they all sort of have that broad caricaturish quality. Well, I think the problem with this film is that the only performance that matters is Brad Pitt's, right? Everything else is like a supporting player in the truest sense of the word. They even undercut his performance to a degree with the voiceover, right? So it's it decentralizes him as a person in a way. Because the film is constructed as if it's being... As if like it's an article being read to us, which is narrated by Scooby Dary, who plays a Rolling Stone reporter who writes an article that eventually gets the general fired or leads to him re- resigning from the... The war in Afghanistan. The Michael Hastings role. But I will say that the film is weirdly bifurcated, right? Because on one hand, the general and all of his staff and the various like diplomats and world leaders, right, are painted with this very sort of caricatured brush, right? But when it cuts back to like the, you know, the boots on the ground, the soldiers who are really fighting the fight, it's like it's it goes for like a quasi-naturalism in a way. <laughs> Very odd. So there's this satirical comedic tone for the first two thirds of the film, really. Yeah, and then it gets disrupted in a way that's I. I mean, it's obviously supposed to be like a intentional juxtaposition, right? Where it's like this is what the sort of media circus, the bureaucracy around the war. This is so ridiculous and absurd, and it's like taking away from the abject horror of the encounters or the actual fighting, right? But it is it in the way that it operates in the film, it it doesn't really work in that like sort of shock like forcing you to like reconsider the the preceding hour and a half or whatever, right? It's more just like it it it's both it undercuts the comedy of that first bit, but it also is undercutted by the fact that we've been watching this like wacky nonsense. At least in my opinion, I'm not much about watching a straight. Afghani like war drama about like Keith Stanfield and watch war. Yeah. Even if I don't ever want to watch it either. <laughs> and his story is like not really resolved. It just 
it gets to a point where he goes on like a rampage in frustration about dealing with this enemy where you don't know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. But I will say it was like, okay, another American movie about where this sort of emotional states of the American characters are like prioritized over the dead. Afghani, like citizenry. Just like, okay, great. <laughs> Fun stuff. And and what the hell is Ben Kingsley? <laughs> oh my God. That was, that's very racist, I have to say. <laughs> You're just like, he's kind of, round they're all the same i don't know it's the similar sort of like weird gross blindness that accompanies like we're just gonna cast like a chinese actor to play a japanese role you know but i was even wondering like if i was looking at his uh ancestry if there was even a way you could broadly say oh i guess he's arabic or something like that but he's not no it's not that's why it's racist which i guess is what iron man 3 plays with yeah that's why iron man 3 is so great <laughs> do you like iron man 3 uh, i kind of enjoyed it yeah it's great. It's one of the best Marvel films, in my opinion. Uh, but we got to talk about the best part of the movie, which is, uh, I think, I think collectively our favorite actor. Uh, is a man named um, John Magaro, uh, who I think is best known for playing the role of uh, Dean in Liberal Arts, which is, I think, the best movie we've watched so far for the podcast. Obviously, the recognition struck you when you were watching War Machine, and even though you had given me heads up about it, I still didn't recognize who he was in this film. So I didn't, I did not recognize him based on his like appearance, right? Mm. But I heard that voice. I was like, "That's from something." <laughs> I recognize that annoying voice anywhere, and of course it was Dean. So which one was he? He's like one of the the underlings. I don't know. He's got black hair. He's kind of like uh, he's very pale. He's Dean Hugh. <laughs> I have a kind of an embarrassing confession to make. Mm. Just that I, uh. Kind of like the actor Topher Grace. <laughs> I don't think he's a great actor, but he has a presence that I kind of enjoy. <laughs> Do you agree with me? I don't have a problem with Topher Grace, is all I can really say about him. I, th- I like that he's making really bizarre and interesting choices, including this one recently, right? Where he seems to only take like, supporting performances in weird films. He's in, like, uh, this year alone, he's in Black uh, Klansman, right? And Under the Silver Lake. Both of the American movies that were at Con this year, or in competition, had Topher Grace. <laughs> Which is so crazy to me. So, I guess, what is what else do you want to talk about here? Like, to me, there's really nothing much to say about this film. because There's, there's nothing much interesting. Yeah, because it it's definitely a failure as a satire, because it doesn't really have a point of view, really. And I think, I think one of the problems is that, on one hand, it wants to... You know, the bureaucracy of war is... It's such a wacky comedy. Look at this egotistical maniac, right? But on the other hand, it kind of wants to invest in his emotional life to a degree, which is very unconvincing to me. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't really know what point of view it wants to end up with or perspective it wants to emphasize. It just kind of goes, oh, well, here's some interesting things that Michael Hastings wrote about. I can see a powerhouse central performance by a A-list actor. Let's see what we can do with this, you know? Yeah. So... What you kind of want from this and what you kind of need at the center of this film is a really charismatic, interesting, compelling performance that gives you some idea of of why this general had a reputation prior to going into Afghanistan and that even seduces you, right? So like you should, you should as an audience member be seduced by his mission 
and what he wants to achieve in Afghanistan and his victory. And then you kind of experience the same fall down that he does. I mean, what he should have taken is like sort of the, I don't know, like Wolf of Wall Street approach, right? Which the way its satire functions is by actually seducing the audience as to like the, the pleasurable aspects of the main characters. And this film, it definitely like, if it were to be successful, I totally agree. Like it needs, the audience needs to experience the charisma that he apparently exerted like over the, his troops and such. Just never really like no even if it doesn't seduce you as an audience member it's not even conceivable that he would seduce any of his officers like he just doesn't seem like a real person at all <laughs> he just seems like a like i don't it's so hard to like even talk about him as like a as a character because he doesn't he just seems like brad Pitt in an snl sketch or something like that yeah exactly it's just so broad and like i don't know irritating <laughs> what i'm wondering is like even though david michaud has some clout right yes and he's got some projects behind him and he's got a decent reputation prior to making this he's still in like a underling position in a way coming on this project versus brad pitt as a producer and a star I mean, it's definitely brad pitt was the sort of creative fountain from which the rest of the films were on right so then you're wondering like if you go you know action and brad pitt starts speaking like okay okay i can't say anything about that whoa 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 whoa, whoa. could you just talk please just just use your voice please because he's both he's producer and <laughs> okay brad we're just gonna take one one shot one just one take where you talk normally god damn it okay i'm getting i'm getting army general voice but i'm not getting human being <laughs> you, just... <laughs> you just dial it down like what but i wonder if like he had the opposite problem or like do you know the famous story about um dr strangelove Mm. where uh how kubrick uh got that like great wacky performance out of uh, george c scott was he was like okay okay george we're just gonna take one take where you be wacky we're just gonna use it as like a warm-up we're not actually recording this <laughs> and then he used it in the movie <laughs> so maybe he did the opposite of that <laughs> we're like he filmed this like really serious performance and it's like we're just gonna take one where it's really wacky and uh we'll just delete that and then like they actually deleted the serious one <laughs> had to go with the, the terrible takes. Oh, and I have to say, it's bizarre to me that Tilda Swinton seems to have had a side career appearing in terrible uh, Netflix original films where she does, again, terrible accents. Because <laughs> she plays, for, she comes up for one scene in this movie as a German politician who's doing like a, I don't know, like a um, Hogan's Heroes like German accent, basically. <laughs> Can we talk about my favorite part of the entire movie? All of it? No. Shut up. Uh, I love like how obvious it was that the person who was playing Obama, like the the thing that he was able to do was like imitate his voice and not look like him, just based on how like they cut around his face in that one scene. And possibly made prosthetic things behind his ears or something. Yeah, because like there's there's one part where you like see the side of his face still looks nothing like Obama, <laughs> but it is it's so bizarre that they choose to fictionalize every character in this film besides Obama and. Hamid Karazi, he's like the, he was the Afghan president. Like, even Hillary Clinton is like a fictional character. It's so strange. I mean, I wonder if there's like a rights issue or something, or like someone threatened to sue if they use the actual names, but it just really undercuts the, I don't know, it just, it, 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 it would have been like some, it would have lended some weight to the film, I think, if it would have been like, this is based on like a real, you know, like person. But in, in, in having this, like, sort of, like, half-fictionized approach, it just seems like, I don't know, it makes it sort of, like, weightless in a way. 
I agree because I think the only power of this source material is the fact that it happened, right? So you need either to be a straight documentary about the events or a recreation of the actual event as you know, as close as you can get within the fictional setting. Okay, can we take about two more things and we can stop talking about this movie? Mm. One of them, which I thought was awful, which was uh, the music. Yeah. <laughs> which if this film already wasn't funny, right, I feel like the music sort of sapped any other comedic potential. Like, there's several times where it's like, they'll set up like a punchline or something and it'll just be underscored by this like weird, sort of dreamy, boring, terrible score. <laughs> But, and then it was kind of a shock when we learned that the score is composed by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, who I don't think either of us are like super big fans of, but I think have at least composed some interesting soundtracks, right? Oh, what do you think of the very ending? The Russell Crowe cameo. Yeah. I feel like that could have been an indie that would have been effective if the rest of the film had been good. I mean, I think, I mean, it's pretty obvious what it's supposed to be, which is just that, oh, the thing that you've been watching, you think it's like the a problem with just this one sort of bad actor right in the u.s army but really it's just sort of he's like a symptomatic expression of all american generals like there's no this is just like a cycle that'll continue to repeat because this is the type of person who's put in charge of wars that's like what it's trying to say right but the fact that it was like stunt casting right and then it's got this cameo of um russell crowe not looking that good i have to say (laughs) he looks a little puffy anyway yeah so bad movie i think uh is the consensus Picture a box, just your average, everyday box, except this one doesn't have any marks on it. It's an unmarked box. You don't know where it came from, you don't know where it was going, but I'll bet you'd like to find out what's inside. Join me on Unmarked Box. Every, uh, so often on uh, Off-Brand Horse. Now we're going to talk about a movie called Clifford, which was released in 1990-something. Or 1994. It was actually completed, I think, four years earlier, and it was shelved because the studio was bankrupt or something, and then it was eventually released in 1994. And you really can't talk about the 2017 David Michaud film War Machine without also talking about Clifford, I think. Uh, So Clifford is a movie starring Martin Short and Charles Crittin. And Mary Steenbergen. Martin Short plays Clifford, who in a uh, frame segment is a uh, Catholic priest who runs a like a wayward youth center. But it seemed like a wayward youth center for rich kids. He encounters a child who's attempting to run away from his like wayward boys' school, who he recognizes sort of a germ of uh, his previous childhood self in. He's a bad boy, right? Who's played by Ben Savage, who is... Uh, Adam Savage's son. No, Fred Savage's brother. So he, instead of just punishing this child, he's like, I'm going to tell him a story about my um, life as a terrible little shit. And he goes into a story where Clifford, played by, again, played by Martin Short, um, unconvincingly, (laughs) uh, is a demonic little child who, through a series of machinations, including forcing to play into land in Los Angeles, is put under the care of uh, Charles Gordon, who is a um, architect who's working to design a public transportation system for Los Angeles, who's in love with Mary Steenburgen, um, and sort of just goes and terrorizes Charles Gordon until the point where he 
goes insane and tries to murder him. <laughs> and that's basically the movie. And uh, I, I, I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. <laughs> I mean, it's more enjoyable than War Machine by a substantial margin. <laughs> I, I, I laughed a, a couple of times. Like, laughs that were obviously intended for me to laugh. You know? I, I did too, I think. The, the thing I like about it is if you look it up on Wikipedia, uh-huh. neither the director nor any of the writers have their own Wikipedia page. Which is it's a little sad. It's a little sad. <laughs> which, yeah, this is a little sad. So I guess they didn't go on to bigger and better things after this. <laughs> so what I kind of enjoy about it in a funny way is that Martin Short is not someone who has ever been that warm towards you. You're saying. And I've always found him annoying. So I, I like him. I think he's good in some stuff. Like he's really good in hair advice, even if it's in a small role. That annoyingness is kind of appropriate for the part of Clifford. This is yeah. This is maybe the best uh, performance of his life, <laughs> where he's like, "Oh my god, he's such a little creep." Some aspects of this film, or perhaps the whole design of the film, seems like it's veering towards something that's quite maybe tone deaf. It's it's I don't know I don't know what it is, but maybe it's thinking that. The, this inherent conceit of adults, Martin Short playing this evil little kid is inherently amusing and that's enough to hang an entire film off. It is pretty amusing. But because of the aforementioned annoyingness of Martin Short, the performer, it does kind of work. Uh, I feel like the whole film, the genesis of it was like, is the final scene. It's like, how can we get to a point where you feel sympathy for a character who is considering murdering another child, right? <laughs> so I think Charles Grodin is quite good in this role. Yeah, I agree. Or, or I'll say Beethoven's Charles Grodin. I mean, he's quite he's quite good in the Charles Grodin role. Yeah. Uh, I like I I like the fact that the the obvious thing to do would be to pair Clifford with like a sort of normal, like not maybe not a great person, but somebody who's like sort of just like a typical like everyman, right? But Charles Gordon this week just plays an asshole. No, I, I, I think that's a great point because before we even meet Clifford, he's already deceived uh, Mary Steenberg's character into seeming like he's more ready for kids than he actually is and more comfortable around kids. Like he's pretending he's got a relationship with his brother's son, Clifford, when he's in fact barely ever met him. So I, I, I agree that that's actually a strength of the film. Um, it's not like he's corrupting a perfect family or anything like that, or it's not like the journey from a perfect dad, Charles Grodin, to being, you know, a murderous dad. It's, it's like a, it's like a, an asshole who becomes more of an asshole because this horrible child, which is a much more compelling dramatic structure, apparently. <laughs> I mean, you've already hinted at it, but um, it does end in kind of a spectacular scene. Though <laughs> <laughs> no, I will say there is so much. Oh, I wish they... I, I would love to watch a cut of this movie that's like 10 or like 5 minutes shorter. And all the 5 minutes will be just the footage of more short on the, the, the roller coaster ride. But I guess you should mention what the the thing is. Because like, Clifford's one sort of... The, the motivation for him being a monster is that he is obsessed with something called Dinosaur Land. Which is like... I don't know. It's like Disneyland but with dinosaurs. And he carries around a little dinosaur called Stefan who he talks to. And blames his crimes on. So is Clifford schizophrenic, do you think? <laughs> or do you think it was purely, his relationship with Stefan is purely a uh, a ploy to deflect from the horrible things that he does? 
Uh, I think the filmmaker's perspective was that it was a conscious ploy. Yes, because Clifford is probably the worst child. Is there a worse? He's worse than like Damien in the Omen, I think. So he's temporarily under the care of his uncle, played by Charles Grodin, who is in a relationship with Mary Steenburgen, and he's a city planner of some description. And Clifford is obsessed with going to Dinosaur Land or Dinosaur World or whatever it's called. Dinosaur Land. Dinosaur Land. You watch this movie today. No, Dinosaur World. It's Dinosaur World. Is I'm it looking really? at Wikipedia, yeah. No, whatever. So fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Dinosaur World, um, but because Charles Grodin is busy with his public transit project that he's working on, uh, and it's for forces outside of his control, it's not his fault. He has to postpone this visit to Dinosaur World. And Clifford gets back at him in a series of ploys. By ruining ruining his life. And it pushes Charles Grodin to the point where he finally takes him to Dinosaur World in order to torture him (laughs) on one of the rides. He puts him on a ride and then uh, after going through it once on a normal speed, just forces him to go ever faster and faster to the ride. Uh, I guess... I don't for reasons that are unexplained. I don't know why it has this setting built into the, the thing, but until it, it hits the breaking point, it, 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 Clifford almost dies, and then he debates to himself whether or not he should save Clifford's life or not. I genuinely enjoyed the production design of the dinosaur ride. It's definitely a type of comedy that doesn't get made today, which is like a spectacle comedy. <laughs> and there's like a stop motion dinosaur robot. Well, there are two. There are two set pieces in this that look like they cost a lot of money. That being one of them, the other one being the city model that gets blown up. It was like, wow, they, no one would ever make this type of movie this today. I mean, no one would ever make a movie like Clifford, period, ever again, but specifically the spectacle elements of it. I get, I feel like it's sort of like a National Lampoon's Vacation adjacent, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of what I would describe as fairly lowest common denominator comedic setups in this film. Yes. But nonetheless, I enjoyed, like... Clifford replacing a Bloody Mary drink with Tabasco sauce before Charles Grodin has to make a toast. Or replacing his uh, chapstick with lipstick. And one of the many uh, sort of offensive jokes that the movie makes. There's a particularly transphobic joke uh, later in the film. Yeah, definitely sort of detracted from me, my enjoyment of this movie. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'll tell you my favourite joke of the entire movie, which is um, when Charles Grodin uh, stops at a gas station to buy Clifford chocolate because he starts freaking out and attempting to murder both of them uh, by driving his car into traffic and Charles Grodin's like okay I'll buy you fucking chocolate and then uh, Clifford notices that a family next to them is going to Dinosaur World and then pays a child to to take his uh, dinosaur costume in order to to slip into Dinosaur World unawares and then uh, (laughs) Charles Grodin has the the great line when he's a chicken friend, and was like, I saw your kid counting the money that he made in the bathroom. <laughs> I always will enjoy a good child molester joke. <laughs> is this a children's film? It seems like it's not aimed to be a children's film. But there are some definitely stuff that seem like it is, you know. Like the very, the atmosphere of humor overall is very, like, you know, sophomore and childish. But that's what I mean, like, it, it is, it's a, it's a little bit tone deaf in conception. Yeah, of course. As to exactly what it's trying to achieve like a film like dennis the menace is aimed at kids whereas this is trying to this is trying to be like a hilarious film that an older audience can appreciate it's a movie for everyone 
I also like that the movie doesn't end with Charles Grodin, like, forgiving Clifford. Yeah, I agree. The, the fact that they don't reconcile is, is good. Um, well, I mean, they do, like, sort of, um, you know, ruin it a bit by having, like, it be in the voiceover slash frame narrative. But it would have been better if they just had never <laughs> reconciled at all. <laughs> Clifford's outfit in this is especially creepy. Like, it's a little ACDC-ish. Like, just this grown man wearing this, like, schoolboy uniform for the entire film. <laughs> There was a weird undercurrent of Clifford, like, looking at nudity, too, or being, like, sexually attracted to women, which I also thought was really disturbing. I was hoping there'd be some consummation of him and Mary Steenberger's attraction. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? The way they showed her reaction was like, ooh, she's interested, too. Pretty much all of the adults, besides Charles Gordon, sort of, and his, his Clifford's parents, sort of fought over Clifford. But still, there, there was, like, a two-way sexual attraction. There's a really bizarre scene at the very beginning, or very bizarre shot at the very beginning where Clifford's hugging a stewardess, and he's like almost like fondling her breast with this dinosaur. So that was very uncomfortable. Did you notice that? Yeah, I did. But yeah, it definitely feels like the uh, future bits were added as like a way to salvage the film in a way. But I guarantee there was something more with his obsession with Mary Steenberger because it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. Uh, and I feel like there were probably a lot of deleted scenes in this movie to make it more like adult and... Just, but that's sort of one of the reasons this is a, I feel like I don't want that because the reason this film is so weird is because it's pitched between being like sort of a children's film and being in a, a film for adults, right? So like if you push it too far in that direction, it becomes less funny to me because it's like less, it's just more like, oh, this guy's a creepy, weird child. It's just an adult, you know? Oh, also the, the scene of Clifford dancing at the party uh, is maybe the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I kind of enjoyed it. Hey, what's wrong with you? <laughs> can, I tell, can I tell you my favorite line? Which was uh, when... Um, <laughs> this is just... It's not like a great line as written, but uh, Charles Gordon performs it wonderfully. Where after Mary C. Burgett asked him what his nephew's name is, and he goes, I want to say uh, Mason. I 100% noticed that line as well. And the reason for that is the I want to say set up for a joke seems relatively recent like that's something that's that's happened maybe in the last 10 years in which that has become quite a trope of comedy maybe clifford maybe clifford's just become a ahead of its time yeah but uh i thought that was pretty funny yeah just because just because charles Gordon genuinely sounded like he couldn't remember either it was ahead of its time or it's just like an occasionally used trope and then it took off more recently for some reason i also like the uh the bit in the police station after uh, Charles Gordon gets arrested because Clifford calls in a fake bomb threat on him. Edits his uh, answering machine tape to make it seem like he's calling in a bomb threat. Uh, where <laughs> the light's too bright and then it's too dim. I like that too. I agree. <laughs> that was pretty funny. It was pretty funny. There are some pretty good jokes in this episode. That was one of the better jokes. Yeah. Uh, but I think, I think we can both agree that Clip, uh, Martin Short as Clifford is one of the defining performances of the last uh, 30 years, right? Would you recommend that someone watch Clifford? If anyone watches Freddy Wear television in this day and age, and it came on TV around 11.30, watch the rest of it. Absolutely. Or, I feel like it would be better if you, if you, unlike, like, if you did not listen to this podcast and just watched it, like, going in completely cold, I think. Because it's a really bizarre film. I think it's, there are, there are some parts of it that are incredibly dated, like all the trans humor, I thought was terrible. I think I think I I think we can uh, trail off with the, this, uh, which is the moral of Clifford, which is uh, if you destroy everyone who stands in the way of your dreams, 
Then you end up alone with no dreams at all. Oh, friend. Oh.